the reading for today is chapter 1 of Genesis, the complete uh, chapter in the first three verses of chapter 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was, was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, Let there be a vault between the waters to separate the water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. <clears throat> God called the vault sky, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, <clears throat> Let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, Let the water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea, and every living thing with which the water teems, and that moves above in it, according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas. And let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. 
God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the bread of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. This is the word of the Lord. Down be to God. Good to be with you. Very good to be with you. I don't know if any of you took up any new hobbies during lockdown, and I don't know how long any of those hobbies lasted. In our house, we did take up a new hobby early on, thinking we needed something to do around the house, so we thought jigsaws. That's the thing to do. So we took up lockdown jigsaws, and we lasted one and a half jigsaws. Um, uh, We did one, and we enjoyed it. And then I said to my mum, oh, we've been doing these jigsaws. We really enjoyed it. And so very kindly, she decided that she would send us a jigsaw. And she thought she'd get a special jigsaw. So she found a picture of us from Facebook, this picture, and uh, had it turned into a jigsaw. Now, those of you who are seasoned jigsaw puzzle solvers will probably have already spotted what the problem was. It was the top quarter, which is all basically just white-gray. And we didn't have a clue. How on earth do you put these? You'd have been as good turning it over and using the back. I mean, like, it was absolutely impossible. It was very, very difficult. Now, why am I talking about jigsaws? We're in a new series uh, this term, starting in Genesis, and it's called Making Sense of the World. Uh, And one of the big words that gets thrown around, and you might hear it sometimes, is the idea of a worldview. And it sounds a bit technical and a bit abstract. And what are people talking about? Well, they're essentially talking about a, a, a jigsaw of life. 
All of us have important pieces in our lives, things that matter to us, things that we think are important. And we're all trying to work out how to fit all those pieces together in a coherent way, in a way that makes one big coherent picture. And that one big picture is our worldview. It is our view of life that has a place for all the different pieces of our lives. That makes sense. And how do we construct that picture? Well, we construct that picture by asking and answering the big questions, the big questions of life, the fundamental ones. Uh, I think we've got a diagram coming up here. We've narrowed it down to three. I think these three questions, there are lots of other sub-questions underneath each one, but these three big questions are right at the heart of anybody's worldview. If you want to make sense of the world, you need to have an answer for these three questions. Who is God? Who am I? Who are we, human beings? What kind of place is this world? What is this world? Now, what you'll notice about the diagram is all the arrows point both ways. And that's because whatever you answer to any of those questions will affect your answer to the other questions. And everybody does have answers to those questions. The most hardened atheist has an answer to the question, who is God? They think God made up. That's their answer. And that affects who they think they are. It affects who they think the world is. If if there is no creator behind it, the world is just a kind of accident, right? There is no designing intelligence behind it. So there you go. Three big interrelated questions. And by answering those questions, we're starting to piece together life. And that's what we mean when we talk about a worldview. And worldviews are really important. Uh, Let me give you a couple of examples of what I believe are are wrong worldviews, wrong pictures, uh, and why it matters. So here's one wrong worldview. It's the view known as materialism. That is that matter and energy are all there are. There is no spiritual dimension to life uh, whatsoever. All your thoughts, all your feelings, they are just processes, uh, chemical, electrochemical responses in your brain. They're nothing more than that, and they have no greater meaning than that. This worldview is nicely summed up by uh, Richard Dawkins, who is a materialist. In his book, River Out of Eden, he says, The universe has the properties we should expect if, at bottom, there is no good, no evil, no right, no wrong, no purpose, no meaning, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA simply is, and we dance to its music. Well, that's materialism. And what I want to say is I think that's a bad view of the world because it doesn't have places for pieces that I think are important and I guess you think are important too. Our appreciation of beauty and the way that art or music or whatever it is can move us. Uh, The the love we feel for, for friends or family. They're not just electrochemical responses in our brains. When, when your mum gives you a hug or something like that, you don't go, well, mum, the feelings that I'm feeling now are really just a pre-programmed electrochemical response in my brain. You don't think like that. That view doesn't have places for the pieces. The, the jigsaw doesn't work, at least not for me. Uh, here's a, another example of a, uh, what I think is a wrong worldview. Self-determinism. This is the idea that if there is a God out there, he doesn't much care about uh, what we get up to, and we are free to be whoever we want to be. We go and create who we want to be, create our own identity, find it out, discover it for ourselves, and then we run with it, and it's up to us. This is a very popular view at the minute. It's what a lot of people are teaching. I think it's a lot of what gets taught to our young people. Uh, our platformer age people maybe, you've heard that, you know, you've got to go and find what you want to do and go and do it and uh, all that sort of stuff. It's up to you. 
And what I want to say about that worldview is that puts an awful lot of pressure on people. If there isn't any guidance out there, if I've got to sort of make my own picture up from scratch, wow, that's hard work. I have no idea where to begin. And every decision and every action I take is is sort of cripplingly important. No wonder our young people are seeing a real spike in stress and anxiety disorders. No wonder there are mental health struggles going on to such a degree because we've told them it's all up to them. And that's way too much pressure. Again, for me, that picture doesn't work. Now, why do I share those two, what I think are faulty pictures of the world? I share them because this talk of worldview, it can sound quite abstract, quite theoretical, quite up in the air. And and sometimes when we talk about it, it is, but it has a profound impact on every second, every, every decision, every action. All of our lives is soaked in it. And so however abstract or technical it might sound, it really matters. It really is important. And if it's that important, then it's important to get the correct worldview. Well, what we're going to look at in Genesis uh, 1 to 3 over the next few weeks is the worldview God gives us, we take it, in the Bible. His picture, which we assume is the right picture because he is the creator. And that's what we're looking at. The next few weeks, we're going to be in the same passage, Genesis 1. And we're going to take a different angle on it each week. And we're going to think about those three big questions. My job today is to look at that question at the top, who is God? That's what we're on today. We're going to look at Genesis 1. And what are we learning about God from Genesis 1? Uh, And I've got two basic things to say, what God is like and what he's not like. So first, what is God like? And I think you get three pairs of balancing characteristics in this passage. So so first, God is a worker who is both creative and orderly. Creative and orderly. So first of all, God is creative. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that phrase, heavens and the earth, is what's known in language as a merism. And a merism is where you use two opposites to stand for the whole. So if you've ever been to a wedding and heard wedding vows, they do this in the vows, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer. What are they trying to say? Anytime, every situation, I'm I'm promising forever. You use two opposites to indicate the whole. Well, that's what's going on in verse 1, I think. God created the heavens and the earth, everything up there, everything down here, everything in between. God created it all. So there are only two kinds of things that exist in the universe. God and the stuff God made. God made everything. Now just think what that means about who God is. How creative is God? I don't know if you like those documentaries you see, Blue Planet, that kind of thing, where you see the the vastness of the ocean bed, or maybe you're into sort of astronomy and Brian Cox taking you through the universe or whatever it is, and you look at it and you go, wow, look how amazing and how varied and how different it all is. And in one verse, the Bible says, yep, God made it all. How creative, infinitely, endlessly creative must this God be? And yet, as well as creative, he's also orderly. 
Uh, we often think those two things are opposites, don't we? If you're a kind of a creative type, then you're probably sort of, you know, you're just lost in your own thoughts or something like that. You don't, you, order's not your thing if you're creative or if you're orderly and you're sort of like a bit more like, you know, accountant, a bit more like this, an engineer, that kind of person. You, you don't really have a creative bone in your body. We tend to think those two things are opposites, right? But not here. God is infinitely, endlessly creative and yet so orderly. So verse 2, it's a lovely little Hebrew phrase. Tohu vabohu. Tohu vabohu. And it's translated here, the earth was formless and empty. Formless and empty. Tohu vabohu. That's, that's what we begin with, a kind of blank canvas, so to speak. And then the rest of the chapter shows a tremendous ordered, thoughtful process behind it. So uh, in days one to three, God forms. I think we've got a table uh, on the screen. God forms on days one to three, and then God fills. Remember, he starts with formless and empty. So days one to three, he forms. Days four to six, he fills. And they correspond to each other. So day one, uh, God is forming the space of the heavens, separating light and dark. And, And then day four, he fills the heavens with particular kinds of light. Days two, uh, day two, he separates the sky and the sea, different kinds of bodies of, of, of water and things like that. And then he fills the sky and the sea with birds and with fish. Uh, and day three, he forms the land. Day six, he fills it with animals and human beings. There's a wonderful order uh, to God's creation. And uh, that, that order is also expressed as it was read out. Uh, Pablo was reading it. You, you've heard him probably say it several times, according to its kind, according to its kind, according to its kind. God is an orderly creator, and he creates in an orderly way. So a wonderful worker. Uh, this is God's working week, so to speak. Uh, his, his six days of work, and then he takes a day of rest. Uh, And in that seven-day period, we see that God is a worker who is both creative and orderly. Now, people often compare Genesis 1 to the pagan creation stories of the cultures around. In those stories, uh, the gods create human beings to do the work because they think it's beneath them to work. But Genesis 1 starts right off the bat and says, no, our God is a worker. Work is good. It's something God himself does. I guess that provides dignity to all of our work, but it also tells us something about God, doesn't it? He's not too lofty. He doesn't think things are beneath him to actually get involved and do things. He is a worker, a creative, orderly worker. Second thing we learn, God is a ruler who is both authoritative and delightful. Uh, So we see God's authority in the way his word has power. So verse 3, and we see this quite a few times, but verse 3, God said, let there be light, and there was light. God speaks, it happens. Again, think about the world this was written into, an ancient Near Eastern world where there'd be kings and emperors and people like that, and their words carried force, power, authority. The king says, I'd like a bunch of grapes, please. And the servants will scurry around and get things done and bring him a big bunch of grapes. And and a king who says things and they happen, that's a king with authority. But that's nothing compared to this. God says, stars, just be there, will you? And they are. Planets, just move that way. And they are. Tiny little molecules, just arrange yourself in that way to create a life, a living being. And they do. God's word has authority, and the created universe leaps to obey him. Yes, we'll do that, God, say the molecules in your body as he commands them to form you. 
Uh, the theological term for this is divine fiat, that God creates just by speaking. All he has to do is say, be like that, and it is. It is a sign of his total and absolute authority. He made everything. He owns it. It is, in one sense, his property because it comes from him, and his authority is absolute. Now, that might begin to scare us because in your life, maybe you've had authority figures who are a bit stern and solemn and maybe quite strict and often we think that goes with authority, don't, don't we? Like a kind, of, a kind of stern, strict, solemn, burdened, weighed down sort of person. I think it's in Henry IV in Shakespeare. It says, heavy is the head that wears the crown. You know, the idea that with authority comes this sense of burden. But nothing could be further from the truth here. God creates one thing after another and then he says, it's good. It's good. It's good. It's good. God delights in what he has made. Yes, he's an authoritative God, but he's a God who is full of joy and full of delight as well. Again, this is a contrast to the pagan creation stories where the universe is created by a number of different gods who fight and war and it's, it's born out of their conflict. Here there's just one God who in joyful, peaceful, ordered harmony makes everything. Because at heart, at root, at bottom, that's what this universe is supposed to be. Uh, The product of an ordered, joyful God who is the one ruler of all. God is a worker. God is a ruler. Uh, Third, God is a giver. So uh, toward the end of the passage in verse 29, uh, God has created human beings. And then look what he says. God says, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth, every tree, that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and the birds of the sky and the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. Notice God gives. He's generous and he's not stingy. He's an incredibly generous giver. It's every green plant. And maybe as we skipped over it, you missed another thing that God gives. Everything with the breath of life in it. Every breath we take is a gift. From this God. God has so arranged the composition of the gases in our atmosphere to be just right for humans to live in. Just the right level of oxygen and nitrogen and carbon dioxide and various other things. And if they were just out by a little bit, it'd be unbreathable for us. Every gulp of air in your lungs is a perfectly mixed, beautifully balanced gift from God. How generous! Everything we have has been received from this awesome giving God. What a generous God we have. Again, that might clash with your picture of God, but the Bible insists from the start, this is what he's like. But generous in a way that is empowering. See, there's a kind of generosity that can disable people. You might remember Comic Relief got into a bit of trouble a few years ago uh, on the idea that they'd sent very wealthy, white, Western people to various parts of the world to fix things for them. And that's kind of disabling and insulting and the idea that we have to do it for you. Well, God's not a God like that. Yes, he's generous. He gives his creatures all this wonderful stuff. And then he says, now go and do something with it. Uh, You see how he says, let them. Let the land produce living creatures. Let the water team. Uh, And and then he, he sends humanity off and says, go out, be fruitful, increase. I've given you all this. Now you go and make something of it. 
God is a God who, yes, creates everything in generous abundance, but not in a way which disables people, in a way which empowers them, in a way which creates space for them to grow and flourish. So what is God like? He's a a worker, a ruler, a, a giver. And the picture that's being built up is of this abundant, generous, joyful, authoritative God. What good news it would be, it is, that the universe has a God like this. But the second point is this, and it's important to come back to this point at this, uh, this moment. Yes, we've learned lots about what God is like, but what is he not like? Let's go back to verse 1 again. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So there's, there's God, and there's everything that's created. He's the creator. Everything else is created. And that means that God is in a class of his own. There's all sorts of different things that are separated from one another in Genesis 1, the light and the dark, the sea and the dry ground and all the rest of it. But there's one separation that is more important than all the others, the the separation of creator and creature. And God is creator, and that means he is fundamentally in a league of his own, in a different scale to anything else that exists. Everything else that exists exists in a created way. He is the creator. Let me give you one example of this, just to try and stretch our minds a little bit and get us thinking. What about God's knowledge? How does God know things, and how is it different? Well, how do we know things? We know things because things are out there to know. They have to exist, and and we receive information from things that exist. So um, I think sometimes we can get the wrong idea and think that like God's a bigger version of Google. Yeah, God knows everything. So does he work like Google? You know, before a word's on my mouth, God knows it completely. Before a word's on my keyboard, Google knows it completely. You know, uh, with the autofill. Um, no, God is not a bigger version of Google. For Google to know anything, there must be things out there for Google to know. There must be information for Google to receive. God knows things as creator of those things. He knows them prior to their existing. It's put really well by Augustine in his book, City of God, who says this, come up on the screen. This is a very striking but true conclusion, that this world could not be known to us unless it existed, but it could not have existed unless it had been known to God. And that kind of blows your mind. God doesn't just know more than us. He knows in a fundamentally different way. He knows as the creator. Uh, God's knowledge is different to ours. His life is different to ours. He creates space and time here. Uh, Before the beginning, he's there. He's not bound by space and time like we are. We live life as a succession of moments, one to the next, to the next, to the next. The only control any of us have over any of our lives is the little tiny slice of time we call now. We only have this bit of our lives at any point. The past is gone. The future, who knows? The only bit we have any control over is now, not God. God is outside time. He has all of his life at once. That's utterly mind-blowing. He doesn't experience time as a succession of moments like we do. He's outside that. He's bigger than that. He's awesome because he's creator, not creature. That's why the Psalms say, you are greater than we can imagine. When I was at Bible college, one of our lecturers who taught doctrine of God 
stood up to a room full of us and said, everyone in this room, including me, right now, is underestimating God. And it's true of everybody in this room too, including me. He is greater than our highest thought of him gets anywhere near. He is truly awesome. And that's what, one of the key points, really, of Genesis chapter 1. It is a critique of pagan thoughts that says you can worship different bits of creation. It is saying again and again, no, don't give your heart and your love, don't give your worship or your adoration to any created thing. It is not big enough to fill your heart. You might have noticed a little point in, in day four when it talks about the greater light and the lesser light. It's weird. Why don't it just say sun and moon? Well, the Hebrew words for sun and moon are very similar to the words of, for the names of Canaanite deities. And so the writer won't use those words because he doesn't want anybody to even get a hint of confusion that those things in the sky might be gods. They're not. They're clocks, very beautiful clocks, but they're clocks God has put in the sky so we can tell day from night. Don't worship them. Don't worship any created thing. They are not big enough to fill your heart. Only the creator in his infinite abundant goodness is. And that is the creator who made us and the whole universe so we could know him. Who loves us, who we sang earlier, invites us to call him father. That is the creator who became a baby. That's, that's staggering, right? This one who is so much greater than we can imagine and he became a delicate, fragile, little baby. And the moment his mother Mary's holding him in her arms, he's holding her in existence at the same time. That's, what? <laughs> That's the God we worship. That's the God it's our privilege to worship. That's the God it's our privilege to pray to as Father. And Ali and Lydia are going to come up now and lead us in prayer.